0: Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of His Word. Let's begin. We believe that the reading of God's Word is as potent as the preaching of God's Word. We believe that the simple task of reading the words that God has given us Do something to our hearts and to our minds that we can't entirely understand. We believe these words are living and active. So when we take a moment to read a passage of scripture, what we're doing is allowing God to set the table of our worship service and saying, God, you set the topic, you set the words, you set the direction of our lives and of our gathering together. So even though you've only sat for like 25 seconds, let us stand. For the reading of God's word from Psalm 127. Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain. You rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Let's pray. O Lord, help us to meditate upon these words. Plant us in them like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit and their seasons and their leaves. They do not wither. Convince us that you hold every single molecule of this universe in the palm of your right hand. And help us to live as people who believe you, who love you, and worship you, and are convinced that you are at work in this world. And Lord, help us to live like this forever. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as you can see in your Bibles, this is titled with a subscription, uh, an ancient subscription called the Psalm of Ascent, or A Psalm of Ascent. And when I first came across that phrase a few years ago, maybe you did this as well, I read Psalm of Ascent and I thought, man, this must be some super spiritual psalm that somehow so spiritual that it gets your soul to transcend above all the other psalms. And all of a sudden you're you're interacting with God in a more potent, higher way than you usually do. And I've since learned that's not what's meant by the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were psalms that Jewish worshipers would sing as they would ascend up the mountain into Jerusalem and worship at the temple there. When Jesus was a boy, he would walk from Nazareth with his family 64 miles and climb 2,000 vertical feet just to go to the temple. These psalms are psalms about how worthy God is. How worthy he is of leaving your town and climbing up Mount Zion and going 2,000 feet. That's like halfway between Meridian and Denver. Climbing 2,000 feet and saying, I'm going to gather with God's people in temple. These psalms are about how worthy God is of that. So in other words, the psalms of ascent are get your tail to church psalms. Psalm, Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. I mean, if if your kids are throwing a fit in the morning on Sunday, you just open Psalm 122 and says, this is the word of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. The Psalms of Ascent get it. They, They get that our souls aren't always thrilled about gathering with God's people and declaring that God is more important than everything else. The Psalms of Ascent get it. And this Psalm of Ascent is offering an interesting reason to worship the Lord. This psalm suggests that everything that you work for and everything that you worry about and everything that you plan is actually held in the palm of God's hand. That God's plans get the final say and that your plans do not get the final say. And this psalm is saying that that is reason enough to go to God's presence. That is reason enough to say you are God and I am not God because God's plans are sure. This psalm aims to answer the question, how can someone worship God and live their life as if he's the most important and gather and say he's good? How can someone worship God when they're overwhelmed and exhausted? Three thousand years after Solomon wrote this psalm, is that still a relevant question? How can someone worship God when they're overwhelmed and exhausted? We believe the scriptures are living and active. They're still asking and answering relevant questions today. So how does this psalm answer that question? How can someone worship God when they're overwhelmed and exhausted? The answer, Psalm 127 says, is remember who is in control. That's how you can worship God. That's how you can live with God, even when your life is overwhelming you. When you begin the day with a few minutes of prayer, what you're doing is you're declaring and you're reminding yourself that God is the one that's going to keep all of the plates spinning in your family that day, not you. When you take a day each week and you gather and you worship the Lord and you rest, you're reminding yourself that God is the one who keeps the universe running, not you. Week after week, day after day, God is calling us to remind ourselves who's in control. And Psalm 127 teaches us that it's him. He is to be sought by every stressed out and exhausted and overwhelmed sinner among us, For he alone offers lasting peace. And this psalm offers four applications to help us remember who is in control. And the first is this. It's pray. I don't think it's an accident that Reverend Kyle gets up and says, let's pray. I don't think it's an accident that Reverend Kyle stood up and said, God is calling us to pray every day. We didn't compare notes, and yet here we are. Emphasizing prayer. The first application of this passage is prayer. Why? Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. If you've ever had a friend who decided to build a house instead of, like, buy a house, I, and I'm looking at a few of you, it's, it's almost as if God is calling you to love on and care for some really frustrated and tired person for, like, a year or two. Right? That's the beauty of the Hebrew Scriptures, these short, simple, concrete, real-life sentences that pack a punch. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If Yahweh doesn't build the house, uselessly they toil building it. But this passage isn't just talking about houses. This passage is talking about all of the most meaningful plans in life. Because in the Old Testament, house doesn't just mean house. We know that because in 2 Samuel, there's this beautiful scene where David is remembering and reflecting upon all the ways that God has provided for him. That God had brought his ancestors out of Egypt, that God had led them through the wilderness, that, that, that God had secured a stable and secure perimeter around Jerusalem and around Israel, and God had brought David to the throne. And David's looking back on all this and saying, God, you are worthy. I'm going to build you a house. And what David means by house is a temple. I'm going to build you a temple in Jerusalem. And God corrects David. And God says, no, David, that's not how our relationship works. You don't build me a house. David, I'm going to build you a house. And by house, God meant a dynasty. I'm going to give you, David, a household. Children are going to come from you. And every single generation is going to have a king from David reigning forever. So when the Old Testament means house, it means the place you live in, it means your children, it means all of your relationships, and it means the place that you gather and worship God. So when the Old Testament uses the word house, this idea house has all of our deepest held aspirations, our professional goals, our relational goals, all of our spiritual aspirations. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So... How do you relate to a God that holds all of your life's plans in the palm of his hands, who at times blesses those plans, and let's be honest, at times frustrates your plans? How do you relate to a God that holds all of your plans in his hands, at times blesses them, and at times frustrates them? The answer is you pray. You humble yourself. You remember who's in control, and you pray. Here's what that means for us. If First Presbyterian Church of Meridian is going to reach people for Christ. And if this church is going to grow Christians and fuel global mission and get witnesses of the gospel to the ends of the earth, and if we're going to take care of the poor in Meridian, if we're going to love our grieving members, if we're going to see children fall in love with Jesus, and if we build up leaders, if we're going to build up leaders here that make a difference in Meridian and make a difference in the entire world, it has to be God's work. It has to be God's work. It can't be ours. God has to build the house, not us. And so for, for us, that means we are to come to him with all of our requests. God has ordained prayer so that we would come to him with the things that we want most deeply, and we'd be reminded by God that he is the one that holds them in the palm of his hand, not us. God wants us to remember who's in control so that we might come to him. Here's how Second Chronicles 7 says it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and present their requests to me, and turn from their sin and seek my face. Then I will hear them from heaven and I will heal their land. God wants us to remember who's in control. Psalm 2 makes another promise. It says, ask and I will give the nations to you. God wants us to know that when we pray, he will remind us who's in control. One of my absolute heroes and Probably one of the writers and theologians that gets quoted most from this pulpit in our Sunday school classes is a, a Baptist preacher from Minneapolis named John Piper. And if you haven't read any of John Piper, then you, you really should. It's awesome. It will change your life. It, it flipped my life upside down as a college student to read John Piper. And Piper says that one of the things he does every day, it's, a, it's this decisive, critical moment of faith every single morning. He walks into his office and he has to decide. Do I go straight to my desk or do I go straight to my chair? And he says every single day he has to decide, does he believe that he's going to be more enamored with himself and his ability to get things done? Or is he going to be more enamored with God and God's ability to get things done? If he goes to the desk, he can start working on the books and he can start working on the sermons and he can start tackling the to do the to-do list. If he goes straight to the chair, he can submit all those things to God. Which is he going to do first? Which gets the, the first seat, the priority? That's what we're doing when we're praying. We're deciding who do we really believe in? Who do we really trust? Now, does this mean that we should be lazy? Does this mean that once we ask God for our plans, that once we surrender our desires to him, that we should stop working hard? Not at all. Psalm 127 totally does not teach that. Our second application is work. Our first application is pray. Our second application is work. Look again at verse 1. Again, the Lord Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guard stands watch in vain. So the builders keep building, and the guards keep watching, but the wise builder and the wise watchman do so, knowing that God is the one that holds every single molecule of this universe together. We keep working, but we remember who's in control. Here's the picture. It's in Revelation 5. We see the Father sitting on a throne. And by the way, look at these things. I don't even know what to do with them. Uh, it's, it's like that, but bigger, more glorious, maybe you know, glowing, I don't know. The Father's sitting on a throne, Revelation 5, and, and he holds out his hand. And everyone in the throne room of God's focus fixes on what's in the Father's hand. And it's a scroll. And it has seven seals. And the next few chapters of Revelation, as those seals are unrolled, the plan of the universe unravels. The whole history of God is sitting in the palm of his hand. All of human history is sitting in the palm of his hand from everlasting to everlasting. And the heavens start weeping because there's not one person or angel worthy enough to open the seals and carry out the Father's plan. No one can do it. And then all of a sudden an angel stands up and John, the apostle, is crying his eyes out and an angel... Puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, there's one who's worthy. And then in the throne room, a lamb who appears to have been slain stands up. And the lamb, without embarrassment, goes to the father's throne. And the lamb takes the scroll and begins opening the seals and carries out the history of the entire world. Jesus assumes Full responsibility to carry out his father's plan. When creation took place, what created all things? The word of God. The word of God is Jesus. He created all things. What accomplished God's eternal plan of salvation? Jesus' suffering. Jesus is the only one worthy enough to carry out the entire plan of God. In John 17, Jesus prays to the father loud enough so that people can hear him, so that we could learn what their relationship is like. And Jesus says, Father... I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And in the same way, Jesus calls his followers to assume the work that he gives us to do. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Christians are able to do the hard work. For their families, and for their businesses, and for their organizations, and for their communities, because we know that God is really the one that's in control. Here's how it works out in my house. Toddlers love to help, right? Toddlers are heroic helpers, right? They see they see sharp uh, power tools, and they think, I want to help. They see the oven door open, and they come running, I'm helping. They want to bake the cookies. They want to use the tools. They want to carry the heavy stuff. Toddlers are down. They're they're great first mates, right? They'll do anything. And so if you give a toddler this opportunity and you say, hey, I got a laundry basket here. Would you carry the other side of this laundry basket? What does a toddler do? They inflate their chest. They stand up. They realize their moment has come. They've been asked to do the work that it takes to keep this place running. Yes, I will carry that laundry basket. And so they grab part of the laundry basket. And the weight of the laundry basket doesn't diminish at all. But within seconds, they begin to flex and cringe and grunt and make these awful noises and get anxious. and. Dad, I, don't know. I don't know if I can do it any longer. And you start to calm them down. Hey, you can let it go. And they're like, no, Dad, I'm not going to let you down like that. I got you. And then you have to, like, create some diversion, like, hey, just drop it. Just drop it. It's okay if you drop it. Drop it. Drop it. We'll drop it together. One, two, three. And they jump back, and they let go, and they get away from the basket, and they wait for it to crash and shatter, and then they look at you, and you're still just holding the basket, and they see you as the strongest man on earth, and they realize that if they had just remembered you were in control, they could have kept doing the work without all the unnecessary strength. The gospel doesn't free us up from good works. The gospel isn't God saying, I'm not calling you to good works. The gospel is God freeing you up for good works. That you could care for other people. You could serve your organization. You could take care of your family. You could do all the hard and burdensome jobs the Lord is calling you. And are they still going to be hard and burdensome? Yes, but they're burdens that in Christ you can carry lightly. He wants you to remember that he's the one that's in control so you can work. The gospel frees you up to serve without being so worried about the results. You are freed up in Christ to just be faithful and to allow the results to be governed by the Father's perfect plan. Work. That's our second application. Our third application is rest. Look at verse two. In vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. A literal translation of this verse would say something like uselessly you rise up early, uselessly you go to bed late, eating the bread of frustration. That's what the Hebrew says. It's useless when you start getting to the point in your work where you're eating the bread of frustration. Isn't that a good picture? Like, does your work ever get to the point where you're just... You, you're not getting anything done. You're, you're driving yourself into a frenzy. You are sitting at your desk eating the bread of frustration. And God's telling you, stop. Give it a break. Go Give to me. bed. He gives to his beloved sleep. When, when I lose sight of the fact that God is in control, my work gets really frustrating really quickly. But there's good news. God has woven into your soul, a treatment for that kind of frustration. And it's called rest. And he wants you to have it. And in Matthew 11, Jesus looks at you and he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come all who are weary, come all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. When the church and the scriptures talk about rest, it's easy for Westerners, especially professionals, anybody, anybody that keeps a job, it's easy to hear that word rest. Anybody that has children, anybody that God is calling to work hard to take care of the people around them. It's easy for you to hear that word rest and say, oh, that's optional. In my case, that rest is somehow an optional discipline in the Christian life. But that's not true. Your ability to rest reveals who your God is and how big your God is. Your ability to rest reveals who your God is and how big your God is. Here's what I mean. If your God is financial or physical security, you will never, ever rest. Because this world is too uncertain. If your God is professional success, you will never, ever fully rest because the ideas will start coming into your mind of what you can do next. You'll never be able to rest. But if, if your God is the hope that you could somehow keep every plate in your life running every plate in your life spinning and, and never fail and never, never have to quit, you're never going to rest because you're living as if you're, you're in charge. But if you come to Jesus, he promises he will give you rest. And Jesus isn't just talking about good sleep and vacations. Though Those things certainly can be restful. Jesus is saying that when you remember that he's with you and that he's for you and that he's preparing a home for you, Your soul can rest even if you're in a stressful period of life. Your soul will find rest in Christianity and your soul will find rest in Christ because Christianity isn't about how many good works you are able to do. That's why you can find rest in Christ, because Christianity isn't about how many good works you are able to do. Christianity is about how much good work has already been accomplished for you. Jesus was perfect for you. And when Jesus was crucified in John 19, he spread his arms and he announced publicly for the whole world to hear it is finished. And what he meant by that is that every good work, all of the righteous deeds that you need to get into God's presence, unashamed, have been completed. He did them for you. It is finished. The father looks on you if you're in Christ and he sees the righteousness that healed the 5000. He sees the love that that healed the sick. He sees the love that accomplished righteousness for the whole world and died for sinners. And the Father looks on you and is able to smile because you have been covered in Jesus' completed work and it is finished and you can finally rest. When you've received that kind of gifted righteousness, a righteousness that was accomplished by someone else, the way that you show it is by resting. You can rest in Christ. I had a teammate, Alan Kratz, a guy I absolutely treasure. Uh, Alan was a goofy guy, and when he came to Christ, everybody on our team knew it. It was all he wanted to talk about. And we started asking Alan, hey, Alan, what are you going to do after practice? And Alan's first few years in college, he would say stuff like, yeah, man, I got to get home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work. And like, yeah, I'm going to the gym. I think coach wants me to gain 10 more pounds. And Alan always had something that he had to do to show you how impressive he was. I mean, he would always, yeah, I got a date tonight. Cute girl, too. Like, there's always something, right? And then we started asking Alan, Alan, what are you going to do after practice? And Alan started saying, man, I'm going home to get some of that Psalm 127 sleep. When you're in Christ, when someone else has been righteous for you and completed the tasks that you need to step into the Lord's presence, you can finally rest. That's our third application. Remember who's in control and rest. Finally, fourth application of this text. Pray again. Pray again. So your blank so far are pray, rest, work, and pray again. Look at verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from him. Then the text goes on to say this beautiful word picture that our children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And I love this psalm. And I love the first half of this psalm about... How God ultimately is the one that holds all of our plans in his hand. And I love the second half of this psalm about how valuable children are, how our society should value children, how our families should value children, how our churches and how ourselves should value children. And I've been blown away by this psalm for years. And I love it. But I really haven't understood why on earth are these two things together. Why are Psalm 1 and 2 about one thing? And why are psalm, why is the, first, the next three verses, psalm, or verses 3, 5, 4, and 5, about something else? And I think this is it. Parenting painfully teaches us that we are not in control. In our church, we have lost children. And in our church, we have prayed for children that have not come. And the children that we do have are living, breathing reminders of our own limitations as parents. So our grief drives us to the Lord comfort, our unmet expectations, drive us to the Lord with requests. And our children perpetually remind us that we are not in control. Verse 3 says, they are heritage from the Lord. He's taking responsibility for them, for giving them. If you've ever longed for children and been praying for children, you don't understand that God is the one that has to create an eternal soul. We're not able to create an eternal soul just with our own desires. You have to wait on God to do that. They're a heritage from the Lord. In the ancient world, just like in our world, just like in our church, children were often crucial in the care of an aging parent, an aging parent. The elderly man in the ancient world could be cared for if he had children. There was no IRA. There wasn't really a retirement plan in the vast majority of the ancient world. The retirement plan, your ability to age with dignity, was your children. And that's what verse 5 is talking about when it says, the person who had them would not be put to shame. They wouldn't be taken advantage of when they contended with their enemies in court. Here God is claiming that he's the one who gives you the ability to age and the ability to do so with any dignity. He's the one that's in control. So verses 1 and 2 teach that God is sovereign over your work. And verses 3 through 5 teach that he's sovereign over the length of your life. And he's sovereign over every single member of your family. There are times when we come to God and we ask him to establish the work of our hands. Establish these great ambitions we have. Establish the things that we're busy working on. And then there are other times when we come to God simply because we've been crushed by the way things go. God uses both our pains... And our plans to draw us to himself. God uses both our plans and our plans to draw us to himself. So here's what that means on the brink of a new year. Whether 2020 is a year that you are excited about. Or if 2020 is a year you're already dreading. God has a purpose for you in it. God is certainly calling you to himself. Without a doubt. Whether 2020 is a year that you're excited about. Or whether 2020 is a year you simply don't want to happen. God is calling you to himself. God is calling you to ascend. God is calling us to live our lives deeply connected with the God who's in control. In the 1850s, America underwent a massive economic collapse. 30,000 men were put out of work in one day in New York City. The anxiety of the period of the 1850s is sometimes called the third great panic in American history. But on September 23rd, 1857, right in the middle of that panic, a Dutch reformed businessman from New York named Jeremiah Lamphere, started a prayer meeting in Manhattan. He distributed a little bill, a little flyer around town, to invite people to a prayer meeting that he was going to have every week, from noon to 1 p.m. The first week, six people came. Some stayed for five or ten minutes before they had to rush back to work. Others were able to stay for the whole hour. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York, and within two years, two million converts were added to the American churches. God is able to use both pain and prosperity to bring people to himself. And though your life may be riddled with grief, worry, and disappointment, know this for sure about the year ahead of you. God is calling you to himself. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let us remind ourselves of the peace that Christ does offer us in the gospel. By reading together the verse of the week, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. It's found on the bottom of the uh, outline page. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to sing a uh, a hymn that may be new to you. It has a familiar New Year's tune, and it's been rewritten with some Christ exalting lyrics. Uh, before we sing that, let's pray. God, we believe that you were the God over all things in this past year, and we believe that you are the God over all things in this next year. Lord, we believe that you have numbered our very days. And Lord, we believe that Jesus has accomplished the work that we needed. We believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead so that we might never truly die. Lord, we eagerly await the day that you return. We ask you to come quickly. Humble our hearts so that we will turn from our self-reliance to your loving care. Make us a people of prayer and use our prayers to transform our souls, our family, and this city and the entire world for your son Jesus' sake. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing and continue our worship. All glory be to Christ. The lyrics are found in the bulletin.